There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, hello and welcome to episode three of Q Commentator. My name's Nick Heath. Thank you so much for coming back to listen to our next instalment on our journey as we discover what it is makes other commentators in the great world of sport tick. And I hope you all enjoyed our last episode with John Hunt. My thanks to those of you that left reviews, uh, ET1987, an outstanding new podcast. Nick has hit the nail on the head with the concept and his own delivery is exceptional as always. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, Stefan Thomas thoroughly enjoyed listening to this interview, though I felt the interviewer was too ready to impart his own experiences on commentary when it was Barry Davis we'd signed up to hear, of course, from episode one. Um, Really appreciate the feedback, Stefan. I think probably from my outlook, uh, I want these conversations to be just that and a bit less of a Q&A. So uh, my love of commentary is is what's got me to having these conversations. And I think probably bringing a bit of empathy to it as to how I would approach things or the experiences I've had is what's driving a lot of the conversations with the people I'm speaking to. But the feedback is heard and noted. But I must say that, uh, well, today's guest, Nick Mullins, is someone that I'm a little more comfortable with because we both work in rugby union. So you may hear a little more of me in this one. Uh, and if that was a complaint on a previous one, then uh, sure, you might just have to deal with that. Um, also, thank you to Chris Temple, who got in touch, who was uh, listening to the podcast on a flight when he was listening to John Hunt saying he's a true doyen of the commentary game. Certainly was. John was great company. Uh, but I think you will find that Nick Mullins is just that this week. Of course, works for BT Sport and ITV, former BBC as well. Began in newspapers before he then became a producer on Radio 5 Live. Uh, then moved into commentary when Bob Shannon suggested he did. And then became Bill McLaren's understudy. No easy gig, that one. Um we discuss whether those who employ us as commentators can really discern what makes a good commentator, which might sound controversial, but I think you'll get the hang of what I mean when uh, you hear that bit come up. We revisit the conversation of musicality in commentary, um, but also poetry uh, and uh, and where Nick thinks that fits with someone like Peter Jones. Uh, then what Bill taught Nick what Nick learned from the great Bill McLaren um, and where Nick thinks you might find a job for life as a commentator. Um, We also, by the way, for anyone who uh, is listening very intently, uh, you may pick up a mention of who our guest is next week. Oh, a little trail for you there. Uh, This is probably one that has the most rugby chat so far. Um, Nick 
is for me, I think, one of the best rugby commentators out there at the moment, if not the best. Uh, he's what I almost call a contextual commentator because not only is Nick brilliant at the player ID and the description of what's gone on, but I think he's actually really good at giving you the the beginning, middle and end of the journey of what's gone on on the field. And that's something that I'm actually trying to to incorporate more into my work as a commentator. I remember the Ollie Thorley try that was uh, scored by Gloucester. They went from under their own posts up the other end. And as as the try had gone in, Nick followed it up with a line, he's travelled the length of the Cotswolds. And it's that sort of visual stuff that just that just sounds great that I love about what Nick does. Um, so, uh, so I think we're ready to go, really. Thanks once again uh, to all of you for listening. I'm really grateful for that and uh, and for subscribing. It would be lovely for uh, for me to see a few more written reviews on uh, on iTunes if you have the time and I can persuade you. But in the meantime, Q commentator. Nick Mullins. Afternoon, Nick. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Nice to see you. Good. Yeah, you too. Thank you very much for your time. Um, Your career started in the traditional world of, or traditional route, shall I say, of of newspapers. Loughborough Echo, was it? Yeah. Um, Was broadcasting on the horizon any ambition at that point? Nope. Wanted to be a journalist, lived in Leicestershire, saw a picture of a London bus, a route master going up Ludgate Hill towards St Paul's, uh, and having having thought that Hunt Stanton on the North Norfolk coast was exotic, the idea of working in London was just what I wanted to do. So it was newspaper journalism and getting my um, my fingertips inky and working on Fleet Street. That's that's where it started. Journalism. I'm still a journalist. Mm. I think you know. I, I, interesting to know how other people view commentary, but commentary is just another form of journalism in my yeah. mind. Yeah, it, it's a live form of journalism. Yeah, the most live there is, I guess. Yeah, it's immediate, isn't it? Yeah. Um, were you any good? At journalism? At, at the, the, the printy inky bit, as you um, refer to it. Well, on the Loughborough Echo, the most important bit was to make sure that you got the uncle's name right in the wedding photos, because if you didn't, then yeah. the editor was on your case Monday morning. Um, and I didn't realise it at the time, but obviously that drilled home to me the importance of accuracy. Mm. And every weekend, sometimes twice a weekend, doing commentary... That's what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I realized a while ago that what that one hundred percent accuracy doesn't exist, so there's no point losing sleep over it. Yeah. But uh, in my mind, getting uh, Uncle Eric's name right is always somewhere at the back of my mind. Yeah, certainly. And and then Radio Leicester ended up being yeah. sort of a route in. Yeah, how, how did that, that was, come about? Well, that was I was doing a, a degree in in media studies actually, one of the early media studies degrees um, down at Central London Poly. Uh, it's now the University of Westminster, and um, specialising in in radio just because I could. And it was the first time really doing the degree that I'd thought about broadcasting. Um, and as part of that, they suggested going on an, uh, a summer attachment to your local radio station. So I got in touch with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Rawling was the producer. Um, John's been instrumental in what I'm doing now. And yeah, it just went along. And I, I still say to to uh, you know budding commentators now who come along my first question is is which local radio station are you offering your services to for nothing because that's how we all start Mm. and and I think it was the immediacy of it that that grabbed me um the idea that when Leicester City scored a goal that I was commentating on that news uh from Bournemouth on the south coast was relayed immediately to my mates listening back home in Leicestershire, and I didn't have to wait 24 hours for the story to come out in a newspaper. This is clearly the days before the internet when you had to wait 24 hours well, yeah. for the paper to be published. So it was the immediacy of it, obviously, um, the immediacy of it that, that grabbed me, really. Yeah, and did, did moving into the broadcasting side of it 
because it was the producing bit was was part of it, wasn't it? So, so yeah. when, when did the sort of move, move to the microphone start to happen? Well, it, it it began in broadcasting because when you work at radio stations for the BBC local radio stations, you're inevitably producing and broadcasting. So I was a broadcaster on Radio Leicester for a while, and then Radio Kent. And then the move to Radio 5 as a producer. Right. Because at that time in the early 90s, when Radio 5 was just starting, um, I was in no rush to get into broadcasting, to be honest, because as much as people like Miles Harrison and John Champion and Ian Payne mm. were coming in from radio stations, Peter Drury as well, a little bit later, going on to the broadcasting side, I actually quite like the production. Yeah, okay. Um, and the opportunity in my mind to work with people like Cliff Morgan and Christopher Martin Jenkins, and Ian Robertson, and Brian Butler, who was one of my commentary heroes on the radio. And I thought, you're in no rush. You're in your early 20s. Mm. You know, Hopefully this will be the thing you'll do for the rest of your life. Just enjoy two or three years listening to what these people do, trying to learn one or two things, but with the long-term ambition of eventually being a broadcaster. And is that how it played out? It was, yeah. My last production role was um, for Robbo, Ian Robertson at the 95 World Cup. So I was the producer. I was the Radio 5 producer at Ellis Park for that astonishing game. That was my final job. Yeah. Um, and a, a, a vacancy had occurred in the broadcasting roster. And Bob Shannon, who is now um, a big wig, big cheese for BBC Radio, was uh, then head of sport on Radio 5. And he said, you've done broadcasting in between your production work. Do you fancy giving it a go full time? Which mm. I jumped at. Yeah. So what was your first commentary? Crikey. Um I don't remember. I'm not very good at this. I mm. won't. I won't. I'm not either. So it's good to meet someone else. Who no, isn't. I, I, I do have the brain of a goldfish, which is which is sometimes a bonus when you're making as many errors as I do occasionally in the weekends. <laughs> I am always by Wednesday brilliant in my mind, despite whatever may have gone on the yeah, weekend that's before. Good. It's a healthy way to live. Yeah, I think. I think so. So I genuinely don't remember. I remember my first. I remember my first TV commentary because um, it was a it was a recorded game for rugby special okay um, in, yeah. the, in the late 90s Chris and I, Ray and all yeah Chris Ray and it, it was actually Inverdale who was who was presenting it by oh, that yeah. stage and it was a game at Welford Road um but I'm not one of those commentators and I won't name names who knows that this is their 300th commentary I have no idea yeah how many I've done, and I'm yeah. afraid I can't remember my first one. On the yeah, movie. but was it? Would it have been rugby? Was you? Were you? Were you sort of being no, framed into been. anything else at that? No, stage? no. I was. I was an all round, all round broadcaster. So I was commentating on football. Yeah, predominantly mm. um, a little bit of rugby in between. But Five Live was then and still is, mm. uh, you know, largely controlled by football. So I was doing. Um, working alongside Alan Green and, and and Mike Ingham and you know the great the great football commentators that they had at the time. Um, doing opening ceremonies for Olympic Games, mm. doing boat races. Boat races are interesting things to do. I know you've spoken to Barry Davis, so you'll have his view on on yeah. that as a commentary challenge. Yeah. But I love the broadness that I was getting. I love the broadness that being a producer gave me to soak up everything that all the brilliance that was in the radio sports room at the time, third floor of Broadcasting House. I was just soaking it up like a sponge. Um, there was a time actually as a producer when I remember, um, I think it was my first day, Christopher Martin Jenkins had been at the final day of the fifth test between England and the West Indies at the Oval, and I was taking his 40-second voice piece in. And the thrill 
of knowing that I've, if I press that red button on the control panel, Christopher Martin Jenkins would hear my voice. And it was one of, one of the, you know, the great moments in my progression yeah. through this bizarre business that we, that, this that will we, be that me. we work in. Yeah, and, and without them knowing about it, I was, I was getting you know, the, the, the basis of broadcasting just by, just by listening to them. Yeah. Um, so when I went into broadcasting, it was a, it was a broad specter, uh, a, a broad spectrum, and um, didn't really specialise in, in rugby until, until Bill McLaren began to move away. So when you got that invitation post-World Cup 95, why did commentating appeal? What, what made you say yes? You've talked about the immediacy of, of that nature of journalism. Was it the money and the fame? <laughs> certainly, uh, certainly wasn't the fame or the money <laughs> at the BBC at the time. Was it a chance to be better than others? I don't know what it is, Nick. It's, and it's something I think of a lot. It was just a way of paying the mortgage, really, mm. that, I, that I enjoyed. I've all, I'm saying to my daughters now, if you can... Uh, have a job that doesn't feel like a job then that's something to aim for and it it does it still doesn't feel like a job to me I'm watching sport yeah. and shouting out names yeah yeah that's what we do and it's it's not onerous and and is there therefore because I often think where you can get to a point where a job doesn't feel like a job it's perhaps tapping into a bit more of where your personality or the natural things that you enjoy about your everyday life fit in so there is there is there a bit of you in bringing that story to people in in watching sport and shouting out names that that has a natural show off in there? That- no, I'm absolutely. I would hope that my friends would would back me up on this, but I'm absolutely not a show off. Mm. Um, I, I didn't want to be a presenter. I yeah. didn't. I'm not doing this because I want to be famous. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the reason I'm this side of the microphone rather than in front of the camera is mm. because. Sometimes it's quite nice to get the 209 back from Hammersmith having had too many eating a kebab and no one know who you are. Mm. Um, it's only we know where to find you now, though. Yes, yes, the 209 <laughs> from Hammersmith. I'm the bloke eating a kebab on the back seat. <laughs> but I quite like that. I like that anonymity. I know when I yeah. wander around with people who are front of camera and they get recognised a lot, I would hate that. Mm. Absolutely hate that. And I'm sure you're the same. You know, when you talk to people, they'll suddenly go, Crikey, I recognise your voice. That's you, isn't it? Um, you sound just like Nick Mullins on the telly, and I'm going, yeah. It's a number of people have said that to me in the past. Yeah, but no, it's 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 not about um, it's not about showing off. It's not about the fame. I'm not entirely sure what it is, which is not the answer. That no, you that's want, fine. But I just feel comfortable. There's... I feel comfortable doing it. Yeah, I can be myself. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely critical to 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 being a decent broadcaster. You can't pretend to be anybody else. One of the things that Bill said to me. And Bill was brilliant, Bill McLaren, as he was moving out. And I was, um, along with Eddie Butler, trying to fill this vast chasm that he was leaving behind. The best bit of advice I ever got from Bill was, don't don't fail trying to be me. Mm. Succeed, hopefully, by being you. What a legend. And that's that's all you can be. You can only be yourself. So what, you know, the best thing that anyone can say about what we both do is that when we meet people away from the microphone, away from the comment box. If they say, you sound just like you do on the telly, then we're doing the job all day. Yeah, uh, that's a battle that I found, actually, when I started, because coming from the background of acting and then going into doing sort of COD performances or doing sort of promotional work and different things, I sort of was, at times, being employed to be a an Alan Partridge-style back-of-the-throat commentator doing all of this. Oh, she's won the race here at this corporate day out in Stoke Park. (laughs) And then when I started doing games, I had to find what was my real voice and try and get rid of this cod voice. How did you do that? Badly, to begin with. Um, I think it took me quite a while um, because, and I think I'd grown up 
I'd grown up commentating on my parents' friends playing tennis. I go, you know, we, just before we started recording, you, you sort of said, you know, no one grows up wanting to be a commentator. I, I might sort of semi-profess to, to, to differ okay. on that because I think at some point quite early, I, listening to the osmosis of, you know, my dad is like many, many British fathers who happily would listen and watch to the, the top 20% of all sport in the country, the Wimbledon final, the, you know, World Cup and, and everything. And and so sport was always on and and you know sport radio as well so just hearing all those voices growing up the whole time through osmosis just yeah. just fed in yeah so whether it was brian moore the old football commentator on itv or, or you know clive tilsey or yourself or or you know bill mclaren particularly and and all those kind of voices it meant that i i sort of formed this version of a commentator yeah before i'd got to a point of finding my own voice yeah, um, yeah. And, and it definitely took me a while and and I still, and I have moments occasionally now which jar with me because people go, "Oh, you don't, you don't sound like you do when you're commentating." It's a different voice. Now I think some of that is actually just performance level. So it's not the fact that because obviously if you talked into the commentary while in the same way we're chatting away here, then it it's not going to quite sound the same. But I don't I'm, know about that, you know. Well, maybe because so th- th- in that case, then it's still something I'm working on. Yeah, but I think, <laughs> I, but I, and you and you will for the rest of your life because I yeah. I, I still do I I. Did um, we're just coming off the back of a run of Champions Cup um, European rugby matches, and I'm aware at the top that it's 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 half a level up from the Premiership, so I need to give it a little bit more. But I'm always aware, particularly in those opening lines at at the top, where the camera um, cuts to the teams in the tunnel. You know, it has to, that has to be in third or fourth gear mm. you know i like to think that you've got six gears as a commentator yeah that's got to be third or fourth gear because you want this to feel like something that matters you want this to look like something that um people sitting at home on the sofas are then happy to invest two hours of their life in yeah. on, a, on a sunday afternoon um so i think sometimes i agree with you i think it is a little bit of acting it's a, it is a performance and mm. and those opening lines at the top of a game might not necessarily be how I sound like on the two hundred nine coming back from Hammersmith. Yeah, but but essentially it's essentially it's you. I'm not trying to be anybody else. Yes. Well, I've noticed that the more comfortable I get, and that's either in the in the actual environment on the day of where you're sat and who's with you or that kind of thing, or if it's a familiar role that it might be, you know, your you know your fiftieth Premiership game and, and that kind of thing, is that mm. actually you the more settled I got, particularly when I was doing the Premiership games with Perform, the more I was getting comfortable in that VO booth, doing those games and actually in, enjoying myself, making lighthearted remarks at things that I was seeing as if I was telling my mates about it. Yeah. And actually those were the things that were then getting clipped up and put out on social media because yeah. they were like, this is, this is nice, this is warm, yeah. this is you, this yeah. is obviously your personality and you finding it. And- the, other thing, the other thing about that as well, I think, and it's, it, it, it's handy for us in a sport like rugby where we're fortunate enough to get to know the players reasonably well when you're talking about them I'm talking I'm not talking about friends I'm not pretending that yeah. Danny Kerr and Mike Brown are friends of mine yeah we like each other yeah and we'll say hello and we'll shake hands whenever we meet at training sessions or matches so we have a good relationship but they aren't friends but I feel a warmth towards them yes so when I see Danny Kerr about to run out for his 250th at stoop with his son and Mike Brown about to do it for the 300th time mm-hmm. with with young Jacks I, I feel an empathy towards them. Mm. And I think the best commentators are empathetic. Um, and if you feel an empathy, then that's real. Mm. That's that's you looking at another human being doing extraordinary things. And not being sycophantic, but just 
giving of you how you feel naturally in that situation. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's part of part of the key. Um, of you need to be, but you need to be relaxed to be able to do that. You almost need to forget that you're talking to however many people you're talking to on the television each weekend. Yeah. And just imagine uh, what I want them to do is when they watch that back when they get home in the evening for whatever we might say over them running out, for it to matter to them. Yes. For it to make that moment, in a tiny way, a little bit better. Mm. Because the bloke on the telly talking to other people watching the telly has said something nice about them. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important. And in in continuing the sort of conversation in finding your voice, it sounds like that fell fell relatively naturally to you. Yeah, it did. Um, because I think it's actually interesting you, you you talking about listening to other people. I would I would you know the, the old listening under the bed sheets to um, Ian Dark commentating on boxing in the old days of Radio Two. You or, old perv. Or, <laughs> Darky does not carry my dreams. I have to. I've got to be. Sorry, Darky, but lots of admiration. But you were not. Uh, you were not my dream man. Um, but yeah, you know, I'd listen to to. Um, Brian Butler and Peter Jones in particular. You know, mm. Peter Jones absolutely inspired me, I guess, to do what I do now without me realizing it. Mm. Um, you know, you're going back to your earlier question about why I do it. Um, I guess it's because I enjoyed listening to those who did it mm. when I was growing up, um, wrapped up by sport. Um, these conversations are very like therapy, Nick. It's good. No, it's, it's good. good. I'm enjoying these, this. These realizations. I feel better. Oh, yeah, you asked yeah. the question that I didn't know the answer to ten minutes ago, and I've now worked it out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> were you getting feedback in the early stages? Um, not so much. No. Um, and I think I think uh, one of the things you have to be as a commentator is very self-critical because, generally speaking, people have views on whether you're good or bad, um, and it comes as a little bit of a shock when you start to do it to a wider audience to realize that not everybody loves you quite as much as your mum does, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that takes some digesting. But the reality of what we do is that very few people understand what the challenge of what we do is all about. So people can say, I like you as a commentator, but I don't know whether they'd be able to say why they like you as a commentator. Um, Perhaps it's easier to to give reasons for dislike. But even if I, and I don't often do it, but even if I'm talking to my bosses at BT or ITV, I don't feel confident enough to go to them and say, how can I be a better commentator? Because I'm not sure that they would know. They will have a view on what they like to hear. Yes. But I think technically we're we're, we're a a very odd, um, fairly small bunch of people who go around watching sport and shouting out names at varying degrees of volume. Mm. But I think only we really understand what we do. Mm. Now, I might be overinflating what we do to a vast degree. Uh, Well, the problem is I'll only go with you. So no one's here to stop us. So so crack on. Yeah. Um, But does that make sense? No, it does. But it it also, it taps into, you know, what's come up with a couple of the other conversations. And perhaps I'm driving this because I I think it applies to me as well. But there's a a requirement to be self-critical, often because there's a dearth of feedback. I think you tap into something important in that that feedback isn't necessarily going to come from people that know exactly how to give that feedback you're not going to tell a mechanic how to fix the car better no. um essentially does the car work yes yeah. you've done a good job therefore. yeah that's it um but i find I, I found that things like you know listening to your own musicality or finding out whether you hit the right note for a certain moment yep. either either sings quite nicely to you yourself which you know as you're saying it, it almost suggests that it's an ego ride but it's actually just going 
well, if I think that, if I, if I think I sold that well enough, if I think I, I framed that nice enough and, and I was accurate, then I'm happy with yeah, it. If, if, if I cracked halfway through that or the ID wasn't quite right on that, it's going to stick with me for a little while and therefore I don't think it was as good. But, but I think there is, I, I've, I've referenced it a few times to people. Now, I know you're, you're quite musical. You like your music. Yeah. I, I picked that up over the years. And, and I, I think there's an importance of that because I don't know whether you can sing as well or whether you're tone deaf, but I, I think those that can hold a tune and those that are musical and those that get a lot out of it have in some cases a good mouth-to-ear relationship. So therefore, it makes you very good at being able to be the right sort of critical without labouring the point. And someone go, oh, that was great. And you, and you go, thank you. That was, that's very nice of you to say. Yeah. I, I, I'd, have, I'd have done something slightly different or there's a, there's a tone there that, that wasn't quite right for me. And, if I'd have, uh, and, and then similarly, again, not being too egotistical, you'll hear something and go, quietly sit in the corner and, and have a sip of my tea to that because I think that one was all right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm always thinking about ways of doing it better. Um, uh, and I love reading. I love literature. I love words. And that, again, taps back into perhaps why I ended up doing what I'm doing. And I do love music. Um, and I love poetry. And I remember um, Peter Jones. I never met Peter Jones, sadly, because he, 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 he died doing the boat race before I'd gone up to Radio 5. But I know talking to, to people who work with Peter Jones, friends of his, that he loved poetry. Mm. And you can hear it in his commentary because there's a rhythm to it. There's a, there's a, there's a use of words, a sparsity, if that's the right phrase of words, that, that works. Even on radio, yeah. he doesn't overdo it. Yeah. Um, and, the, and, and you know, I'm thinking a lot at the moment, for example, about how important this is. And on radio, that might have been a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. But actually on television, that is no time at all. No, exactly. Um, and so, the, so the, the kind of minute details if, that, that I have going on in my mind during a commentary are not necessarily the details that people who don't have to orchestrate it are thinking about. They're, they're thinking, did you sound excited when so-and-so scored a try in the 85th minute of the match to win it by a point? Well... I'd, I'd, I'd hope that I did. Yeah. But actually, that's the easy part of the job. Yeah. The hard part is putting the frame in place in the previous 79 minutes that gets you to that point. Yeah. How would you describe your voice? Um, I quite like it. And I think that's, in, that's clearly one of the key things, isn't it, for mm. a commentator? I love that answer. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't, if, I, if I disliked my voice, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. No. Um, You'd I, be surrounded I, by it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you, you have to have a good voice for for a commentator. You know, I'm mm. not uh, I, I, I'm not going to blow my trumpet much over the course of this chat, Nick. But uh, I think you can't escape from the fact that commentators have good voices. Mm. You wouldn't have spoken to anybody during the course of your travels over however long it's been uh, who sounded like fingernails being drawn down a chalkboard yeah. because they just wouldn't be doing the job we do. Are you someone that? Uh that looks after the voice in any particular ways? Do you warm up before commentaries? <laughs> no. <laughs> we, I, know, I know we had this, this chat before we pressed the record button. Mm. Uh, and again, it's interesting. You know, I've been doing this for 3,000 years and I've never thought of, of warming the voice up before we go. Um, there are things that I do. I, I, you know, I won't, I won't uh, drink coffee okay. um, an hour before the match. I, won't, I, won't, I don't eat much. 
before the match. I know, I know eating has been a theme uh, of, of these chats <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, Sarah so. Orchard were very keen on what, what should be eaten and couldn't yeah. be. Yeah, I'll eat if I'm hungry, but I won't if I'm not hungry. Right. Uh, uh, then I, and I'll, I'll avoid, try to avoid carbs as well because that, that slows you down. So no, I'm, I don't, I don't go, go through any, any vocal warm-up. In terms of the voice being in the right quality, then how far back does that prep go? Would you would you drink the night before? Would you you know these sorts of things affect your voice particularly? I I remember Bill saying that he was always in bed at ten o'clock on the night of a match. I wouldn't go that far, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be drinking alcohol to excess the night before. But if I want a couple of glasses of red, that's that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Have you had moments when it's let you down? Um, I don't think I have. Uh, 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 <laughs> yeah. uh, only now. Only just then. Yeah. Um, I think the voice develops, and it's interesting to to listen back to stuff that I was doing on Radio Kent in the late 80s. Uh, you know, uh, it's a different voice. It's mm. it's a young me's voice, mm. and it doesn't sound like me today. And that's yeah. probably a good thing, because it doesn't matter whether you use your voice for a job or not. The way you sound will change over the course of 20, 30 years. Yeah. Um, I've learned I've learned to control it. I think a little better. Um, I used to find certainly in the, in the, in the um, early days of doing radio commentary that it would that my throat would go dry and I'd have tickly coughs because obviously radio is a different discipline. You're having to talk much more than you are on the television. Yeah. So so learning to pace the voice so that it lasts for eighty minutes while continuing to provide you with six gears is something you learn to do. Um, but I don't... Uh, I think I might have lost my voice once before a radio commentary in Cardiff with Barry John at the old National Stadium. And it was a Six Nations... It might even have been a Five Nations game. I think it probably was. Mm. And I just had a cold. So the usual fluey stuff. Yeah. Sore throat. Um, not easy to talk. And I'd overdone the lozenges. That I suppose that was uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but you would have needed to know me well to know that that probably wasn't my what you normally voice. sound like. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that's good. Um, you've described yourself, I think, as as rugby being your primary sporting passion. Is is that about right? I love football as well. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I actually stopped doing football. I had to. I had a choice to make um, in the late nineties, early two thousands, because Bill was was thinking of retiring, and I was working predominantly on radio at the time. Um. And TV came along and said, how do you fancy giving it a go on television? Uh, and obviously I was very excited by that prospect. But I was doing football commentary for Radio 5 at the time. And mm. they said, you're going to have to give up the football commentary though because we can't have you commentating on football on the radio and rugby on the television. Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting view from that is, from, isn't it? from the management. And I, I, under, I, underst- I understand that. That view has obviously changed a little with the likes of Conor McNamara and people like that who, who switch between the yeah. two these days. yeah. Um, yeah, no, abs- absolutely right. Um, uh, but I, w- I wasn't entirely sure because I love football. And, mm. You know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a big Leicester City fan. And actually, the defining moment was Leicester City against Middlesbrough on a Monday night, a Monday night commentary on Radio Five. Leicester one up going into injury time, and Middlesbrough scored two goals to win it. And I sound like Middlesbrough scoring two goals to win it is the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me in my life because I have to. Yes. Because I'm aware that there are Middlesbrough fans all over the country listening to this. But I drove home thinking, I cannot, however much I'm being paid to commentate on football on the radio, continue to do this long term if I'm having to pretend to be excited about Leicester City conceding late goals. Oh, wow. So that was the decision to 
kick football. So your fan, your fandom. I'm a fanboy when it comes to football. Okay. Um, and I'm a Leicester City fan when it comes to football. When it comes to rugby, I am utterly neutral. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, this is a fascinating thing, and and you know, I'm, I'm sure it's something that you will come on to. So we won't we won't overdo this now. Mm. But I, uh, if Leicester City lose a football match at the weekend, it still affects my weekend. I'm in my early fifties, mm. and it is pathetic. And I ought to grow up, but I'm still badly affected by the performance of 11 blokes that I've never met who wear a blue shirt. Leicester Tigers are just another rugby team to me. Right. I genuinely... Did you did you ever form a bond with them before? Oh, I was a fan. Of course I was. Yeah, yeah. I was growing up in Leicestershire. So I, you know, first time I came to London um, on my own was to watch them in John Player Cup finals in the early 80s. Right. Um, you know, and um, I met my first girlfriend standing on the the Crumbie Stand Terrace at Welford Road. So no, I'm I was a Leicester Tigers. What a story that's I was a Leicester Tigers fan. That's another podcast coming well, there soon. You go. There you go, <laughs> ladies. Life, you life, met at the Rugby on the Crumbie Terrace. <laughs> um, but I didn't. I didn't. I've not found it hard to to leave my fandom for the city's rugby club behind for reasons mm. that we might go into. But it's it it becomes a job. So therefore, whether Tigers win or lose at the weekend really isn't one of my priorities. One of my priorities. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You work closely with Bill McLaren, a man you say that you uh, learned everything from, uh, I've read previously. In, in what way would you describe that? Um... Most importantly, I think in well, two two things. One preparation. Um, Bill was Bill was the the bloke who taught me that time on touchlines getting pneumonia in the rain is never time wasted for a number of reasons. One, it allows you to recognise players, and that's our key job. The first first job of the commentator is to identify, mm-hmm. um, and you can only really do that properly by watching them run around during the week checking backsides from 50 metres, looking at hairstyles. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so the preparation was one. And the other one was, again, just just the empathy. Bill loved what they were trying to do. And I think one of the most important things for a good commentator is to be balanced, to be open-minded, but to look for the good things, mm. to look for the positive things. Because, you know, we're watching people doing extraordinary things. Um, 
And my least favourite commentators are commentators who give the impression that they could be doing it better, which is utter nonsense. Yeah. Um, so Bill prepared, Bill loved his sport, um, and he loved the people involved in it. And I think that came across. And, you know, I think I think that helps you project a, a warmth and a passion for what you're doing, uh, particularly if you're investing time in it during the week, watching them um, prepare for their Saturday, Sunday afternoon. Yeah, and something I think Bill did well, you know, he'll, he gets the plaudits for the, the fun lines and the various things, but in a complicated sport like rugby, for me it was the fact that, that he could have my late mum on the, on the edge of her seat mm-hmm. screaming because he'd done enough to explain what, was, what had just happened, what might be about to happen and what to look out for. Yeah. And those little bits of detail, I think he was one of the best at. You know, well, they've, they've got the ball into the corner here and you just keep an eye on so-and-so who might be coming in and here they go. Yeah. So you were ready to go with him as to what was about to happen. So even if you didn't need to know all the laws, he'd given you a little bit of detail as to, as to what was coming and you were involved. And therefore, you were on board, and I, I think I think that was a quality that often, with all of the the sort of roaring headlines that he used to make with all, all the fun, is sometimes forgotten because actually his class was bringing everybody with him. Yeah, yeah, I I, I love those lines. Actually, uh, his use of uh, Doddy, we are the charging giraffe mm. type stuff and baggy up a board of burn. Yeah, impacted on me in the early years because that advice of his. Um, to not fail trying to be him mm. had a huge impact. And as a result, I, it was absolutely law number one to never use um, an animal analogy yeah, because it would be Bill. I've, I've kind of loosened up on that now because I've been doing it long enough yeah. for hopefully people to realize that when I do that, yeah. it's not me trying to be Bill. It is the image that I genuinely see in my head. Yeah. Um, well, uh, and uh, I can think of a recent one where you referred to the Chiefs as the Devon Stranglers, and I just—I was sat at home and I just—I tweeted immediately. It was just like that's—that's that's a lovely one from Mullin. And someone could say, "Oh, that's such a Bill McLaren style thing to do," yeah. but but ultimately it was so you and so the way you said it, and I was just <clears> like, "That's that's." Yeah, I think done. I think I think hopefully when you've done it long enough, you you earn the right. Um, or at least you're 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 strong enough in your in your own mind to say no, that's not me trying to be Bill, mm. or that's not me impersonating Alan Partridge. That's me. Yeah. Now, if you don't like it, well, I'm really sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and if you've come up with something quite nice like that as well, there's no reason to censor no, it. No, absolutely it's, it's not. A, it's, no, absolutely not. But paints a nice picture. Yeah. Um, what interests me about Bill, um, and Bill was the best of his generation. I'd like to know, and he may well still be the best of his generation now, mm. what Bill couldn't do now is commentate the way he commentated then. Agreed. Because the challenges that we have uh, with the extra voices in the box, with now not just one extra voice, but two extra voices, and another voice with the referee that we get dogs abuse for if we talk over the top of... Mm. Bill isn't in control of that commentary box in the way that he was in mm. the 60s, 70s and 80s when essentially it was his voice and every half an hour he'd allow dear old Bill Beaumont to get five seconds yeah. in. Um, it's different now. We're much more orchestrators, I think. We're much more conductors yeah. of, a, of a bigger group of people within the box in a way that Bill wasn't. Well, Barry Davis was interesting talking about when he first started alongside <clears throat> um, uh, David Coleman. And he said there was one microphone. 
So his his actual job to begin with was to try and wrestle the one mic off yeah. David Coleman to be able to say what he wanted to say. And, yeah. and, and, yeah. and he said that, that was a massive challenge. Yeah, well, I know if you talk to, to, to Bill Beaumont about his memories of commentating alongside Bill McLaren, it's of looking at the back of Bill's head yeah. with his shoulders turned away from him because Bill was looking at the TV screen. Yeah. Um, Bill would be brilliant, but it's a slightly different job to the one that Bill did. Yeah. You mentioned Bill talking about the preparation and, and the focus on that. You've done football, you know, for radio. You've, you know, these days you're doing the, the tennis and the rugby and, and you've done the boat race as well. How does the prep sort of vary? There's a, there's, there's, there's a formula to it. There's, a, there's a, um, a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday that I, that I do each week when it comes to rugby and it involves just being around the people mm. um, and looking for the humanity in what we do. I won't. I won't bore you with with how I structure my day schedule. and how yeah. I structure my week. But it's essentially talking to people face to face, finding out what's on their mind. Um, how fa- how difficult do you find it to work out what's on record and off record? Then, when you're talking to these people, because some can someone you know someone could turn around to you and say, or you could be speaking to Andy Murray or his coach or someone, and and they could turn around and say, well, actually, he's been he's been suffering with a bit of a niggle here, but we don't you know we're not going to mention that because we don't want people to know. And you're like, yeah. oh, okay, that's good to know. Yeah. And then in commentary, if if it's if it's coming up, and you go, well, you know, we're aware that he's been suffering with that, and you're like, well, well I'm not meant to be sharing. It, it's it can be a difficult balance. I think you know. You know, I do think you know. I think it's probably worth saying that that if I worked full time in tennis, I'd hope to have the same kind of contact with with an Andy Murray or a Kyle Edmund that I have with the rugby players. I don't, yeah, because I'm parachuted into tennis, yeah. a couple of times a year. So as as hard as I try to to uh, put some humanity into what they're trying to do, I don't I don't have the access to them. So yeah. it's, it's as simple as that. So it's a slightly different, yeah, okay, um, um, prep process, but. I hope that the coaches and players know me well enough to know that if we're talking on the side of a pitch, unless they say, you can't use this because this is brilliant gossip about so-and-so, yeah. everything is on the record. Yeah, okay. Um, but you do develop a, a you know, you, you'll know this, that, you know, there's, a, there's a, 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 an inbuilt thermometer that allows you to know when stuff is too hot for broadcast. And most of what people talk about, I can, I can use on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, I would agree. The big moments then, as a commentator, you've got to nail those and, and it's things that people will remember. How much forethought or writing of lines have you ever done? Um, those two are different things. Obviously. They are, they are. I, I, I think about it all the time. A commentator that doesn't think about how he might describe the All Blacks, Richie McCaw lifting the World Cup in 2015, isn't doing his job or mm. her job. Um, so to say that I'm not thinking about it would be a lie. Um, I try not to write the lines down. Because again, I think you can hear it, mm. and and the problem with writing lines down on television is that uh, the line that sounds great in the living room here in Southwest London might not be appropriate or applicable for what we're seeing, particularly on television yeah. at the time. Mm. Um, and I remember having this conversation with Barry Davis about it, um, and the contrast between him and Motti. I don't know Motti anywhere near as well as I know Barry, but. I understand that Motti's approach was was to, uh, particularly at the top of a, a match, to script a lot. Yeah. Um, and he would read those lines perfectly understandably over the set shots of team in tunnel, yeah. captain, teams run out, yeah. referee, kickoff. Yeah. It's all fairly formulaic, the way television structures these things. Yeah. Um, Barry Davis was very much of the opinion that 
the director shows you a shot and you try and find something interesting to say about it. Hmm. Now, Barry's a genius. Yeah. And he can find something to say about it without necessarily having given it much thought. I'm not. I'm a clot. So um, Yeah, I certainly write the top of mine a little. Yeah. I'm, I'm particularly over the, the, those shots in the tunnel, uh, which are the bits... Uh, I kind of think I'm, I'm a picture framer sometimes, um, and my summarizers provide the splashes of colour and insight, insight. So if I'm going to put that frame together, I know... I need to know what the essential component parts of that are. Yeah. And certainly before kickoff, I want to get everything that, or the significant things that people might have picked up during the week about that match. Yeah. So here's the match. Here are the talking points. Here's what it means. Going for a 10th in a row or going for a Heineken Champions Cup semi final. Mm. So that once we get into the match, all I have to concentrate on is the match. Yeah. And that's something I've, I, I've thought more and more of as my commentary career has developed. Yeah. I, I used to try and add structure in the game and be talking about things that had happened three weeks ago in the game. I don't think that works. Mm. I think the way people watch sport now has developed so much that they just want real-time insight. They don't care what happened last season. They don't yeah. care if you got 15 points three months ago. They just care about what they're seeing at that at that point yeah uh, I've noticed that sometimes with the information you can get before games and that's provided to you by you know whoever it might be that you can you're given the stats this is the this is the seventh time these two teams have met and this is a, and, and I think I've been guilty in the past of of putting all those little details into into the top and I've missed out the fact that maybe you know they met two weeks ago and there were two yellow cards and a red card, you know, something that it, it was a, it was a massive affair, let's say. Mm. And so actually what you want to do in the opening is just say, you know, there's no love lost between these two. You know, it was, it was a hell of a ding dong a couple of weeks ago. You know, are we going to see a similar, similar flashpoints? There's a, and, and actually to, to describe more about what we might be about to see between these two sides based on how they like to go at each other, which gives people watching an insight um, rather than coming at it with all the facts and figures of, of the day. I think also you're reflecting on things that you're seeing. Mm. And if you're looking down at the script, reading a couple of sentences, you're missing the two captains looking across the line at each other. Yeah, yeah. Or shaking hands or smiling or, again, you're missing the humanity. I'm one of the closest relationships I have uh, on the BT Sport and ITV team is with um, um, a brilliant bloke called Adrian Hill, who is our statistician, and he's the chap who sends out all the facts and figures um, before each game, and he works so hard. He's one of the hardest-working people on our team. Um, and he gives us reams and reams and reams of stuff. And I use, you know, I use little bits of it, but Aid, Aid knows that I'm not big on numbers. Yeah. And I think one of, one of my... It's not criticism, it's just an observation of the way that commentary is going across the board, is that it's becoming too obsessed by numbers. Mm. And and reading out numbers is the easiest job in the world. The real job is, is to bring out the humanity in these people and to, and to look for flickers of nerves or fear or excitement because that's why we love sport. I'm, I, I know the Americans love statistics. Yeah. Increasingly, I'm falling out of love with statistics. If it's a 300th game... If it's a thousand point, if it makes them the top point scorers in the history of the universe all time ever, <laughs> then I'll give it a mention. Yeah. If it's the eighth time they've gone into the twenty-two, who cares? Yeah. 
Well, that's a little bit. I remember when we met when I was, you know, showing you the prep I would do for a game and you said, well, I can see you're going down the kind of almost that Bill McLarenism of having the name, having the, the, the ages of each of the players there. And <clears throat> frankly, at this level of elite sport, they're going to be somewhere between 18 and 19 and 35, 36. Yeah. So unless he's 17 or unless he's 40. Absolutely. What's yeah, the point? Absolutely. You know, Will Skelton losing, losing a couple of stones over the course of the summer is a good line because mm. we're going... How the hell do you lose two stones over the summer? What can I do to, to yeah. put that into my life? That's significant. <laughs> yeah. um, and it has an impact on the way he plays. But a prop is going to be 19, 20, 21 stones. Yeah. If he's 24, 25 stones, then I'll mention it because mm. then he's not a prop. He's a baby elephant. Yeah. And, you know, again, that's the human side of things. But yeah. don't get wrapped up in numbers would be my advice because yeah. by getting wrapped up in numbers, you, you, you can occasionally miss the interesting stories. In things like Rugby World Cup finals, then, you will have big moments that are recorded for posterity more so and, and reflected on. Does that change the prep for those sort of things? Or is it about absolutely keeping it the same? Um, no, I don't, I don't change the way I, I would prepare for a game. It, it, it changes clearly the importance of what you say over a moment because it's a, it's a bigger moment. And mm. I want to get right um, what is happening at the time. You know, you... You're adding to the pictures, and very much at that at that point when Rich McCaw's lifting the World Cup, I, I always think our job as the commentator is a not to say too much because um, you need to be absolutely sure that what you're saying is more exciting than the sound of eighty thousand people going bananas. Um, but it's almost like a, a, a picture sub editor coming up with a strap line, um, and I think I think uh, that McCaw moment. I, I I'm not good at this. I I think I'm. I'm at my most comfortable when I'm just in third, fourth gear, mm. in the middle of a game, just h- sitting next to you in the stands, chantering yeah. on about the match. Yeah. I, I don't know whether I nail the big moments particularly well. It's not you know, it's something I might work harder on. But, you know, I think I think when McCaw lifted the World Cup, I, I think I said back to black. Yeah. Or black to black, or whatever it was. It was some nonsense. It was the kind of thing that you'd see in a newspaper. But I remember Inverdale coming up afterwards going, you're an absolute git, because that's exactly what I was going to say when they came back to us in the studio. Um, Brilliant. So we all, think, we all think the same. We've all got these kind of... Anything to scrooge on Inverdale yeah, over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we've all got these kind of pea-sized brains that come up with, with some nonsense. But they're, they're, they're the hardest things, because it's a, it's a wonderful moment. Uh, and very often, I think, actually, just... Just be brave enough to say nothing because there's yeah. really nothing we can add as commentators to those pictures. What about those moments that are coming that, you know, I mean, obviously a, a, a trophy lift you can see coming in tennis, perhaps more than rugby, which, and you know, football can be very explosive on the big moment. Suddenly a shot's come from 40 yards out. Mm. Rugby builds a little more. Tennis, you know, you can have you can have an explosive shot, but for example, you build to a match point in tennis. And, and I sort of had a bit of this chat with Barry Davis and, you've got a bit more time to see it coming and it, what's the sort of internal monologue like in terms of knowing right this this is this is coming and it's i've i've got a there's got to be a line that summarizes this and do you do you almost try and stop the internal monologue so that it is natural at the time or might something creep in and you go okay i've got it now i'm ready i'm ready for when that shot is made yeah you th- you, you you are thinking about the way you reflect what you've just seen um uh, but don't think too hard about it mm be natural mm. that's what i try to be mm. um you know the most important line is is if nadal's winning his 10th at roland garros then 
you know that in 12 months' time, ITV's producers are going to be looking for a line that they can put into their opening at the start of a brand new tournament. Yeah. So that's that's on your mind. You're conscious of these things, aren't you? Of course you, you are. Yeah. Of course you are. So, you know, I don't want to say, there he is again, Rafa Nadal, winning another <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah. Because that's not going to cut the mustard. So, yeah. you know, that's going back to your idea of being a drama being a drama student a bit of a a bit of a performer you've got you've got to come up with a line that matches that matches that but sometimes tennis is entirely different to rugby I think because you're not commentating during the bulk of the action yeah that's true it's a a moment's reflection it's a moment's reflection which is why Dan Maskell was so brilliant at it because Mm. very often in commentary at the end of a you know if if it's it's a fed or a lob from the baseline at the end of the most extraordinary rally. Mm. Sometimes your natural reaction is just to go, oh, yeah, that's it, yeah. Because yeah. what Barry's, Barry's done similar. I even uh, said to him, I said sometimes you'll just go, oh, well, because because <laughs> it's what it's all you want. Yeah, what what I want to be as a commentator is the bloke that you might sit next to in the stands who doesn't annoy you too much, yeah, and occasionally says things that you'd not thought about or tickles you. Um, don't overdo it, don't overtalk, but, you know, for a couple of hours you don't mind being in their company. What calls have you put the mic down from and thought, <clears throat> not sure I could have done that much better? Have you got, got sort of moments where you've been happy? As someone who's already professed to not having great recall on, on all its comms, you might go, I can't remember. <sighs> Genuinely, there are... I, I don't... I don't have a favorite commentary moment in mm. my in my mind it's not it's not what i think about what i think about is is the rhythm the spacing identification clearly mm-hmm. i've got to get the name of whoever's scored the try or the goal or hit the winning forehand right getting it right in tennis is not so hard because you've only got two sometimes four people to worry about um so for me um i i, I had a try at the weekend which which built from one side of the 22 to the other with a winger going in uh, in the far corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the joys of, of rugby commentary, I think much more so even than football, one of the joys of rugby commentary is that you can build it. And it's where my love of music helps because I'm aware of the rhythm of things. Yeah. And even within a, a, an action, a, a bit of action that might last 15, 20 seconds, you can get changes in pace to that action because you've got big forwards <clears throat> hammering in trying to win the ball back from a from a ruck or a maul yep. they're the big heavy percussive instruments and then you've got the little nimble backs um yep. you know some flutes staccato strings it, uh, yeah, exactly flicking yep. it along the line uh, and then you have that big crescendo where where the try is scored but also uh, allowing in the middle of all that for there to be time to listen to the crowd mm. and to hear that excitement building so genuinely I, I i i can't recall a moment that i'd happily stick above my my headstone at the end of it all mm. but i i just you know when you've got it right as a commentator because what you've said uh is happening as it's happening mm. there's a lovely rhythm to it you've identified the players properly and and as an accompaniment to what we've just seen you'd hope that it would it would enhance it are there moments you've been less happy with or or when you're conscious that something's not gone quite right how long does it does it stay with you um it would stay with me for 24 hours i'd i'd wake up the next morning 
and actually something that happened fairly early on in my career it was France against Wales in the in the Six Nations and it was at the time that we talked a little earlier about how you were trying to put bits of information that had happened during the week or in previous games into live commentary and as a result of this I missed possibly Stephen Jones's greatest break in test match rugby that led to a Martin Williams try that ultimately took Wales to the Grand Slam and that was a seminal moment for me because I realized you can't be adding stuff from three months ago when something exciting is happening in front of your eyes mm. um, so it's though it's though I don't regret them because it's part of the learning process, and that was probably you know a couple of years into being a, a television commentator. Yeah, it's not making the mistakes; it's the old adage, isn't it? It's making sure that they don't happen again. Yeah, and we mentioned it earlier. There's there's an element of wanting to make sure you say the right thing, and some people will take issue with what you said in certain scenarios and, and think that there's a bias that's coming with it. Where do you stand on on that perception and and your your role? Whether it you know you've mentioned the club rugby non-allegiance and and even if you had one it wouldn't make a difference because you're probably going to give us a, a fair reflection if it's if it's going to be you know a Lions series against New Zealand or something like that and you're doing it for a UK audience then <clears throat> is there going to be a sense of of how sensational it is and how great it is that the Lions have won a series I mean I don't know it's whether, always, whether bias matters I'm always aware in it and it struck me during the Football World Cup um, that we've become far too much we and us Mm. And there's no we and us in commentary. We're broadcasters. We're broadcasting to everybody. And if 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 you're watching, uh, whoever it might be, Wales against New Zealand or Ireland against New Zealand in a World Cup final in Japan, or perhaps even England against New Zealand, who knows, um, in, in a few months' time, and you're sitting there with your New Zealand friend, I want to be talking to both of you. Mm. I don't want to be only talking to the home nation mm. supporters. We're broadcasters. We're, you know, as soon as you mention we and us, you automatically exclude anybody who isn't we or us. And I just think it's an appalling thing to do. Do you think COCOMs are allowed to say any of that? <clears throat> or would you rather they do? I wish they wouldn't. Yeah, I, I'm the same. I wish they wouldn't. It's, it's, it, why is it harder to say England yeah. instead of we? Yeah. Uh, you're employed to be, you, you, you're going to have an allegiance. We're not injecting the allegiance out of the COCOMs, but they've got to be balanced yeah. and they've got to be there to enjoy the joy of the occasion and not be rooting for one side or the other publicly. We understand who you played for and which country you were born in, but there's no excuse for using we in my mind. Mm. Moving into the sort of later chapter of our conversation, um, what would you perhaps like to have commentated on that you haven't had the chance to? Um... I'd have loved to have done, might still happen, who knows. I did the boat race on television for 10 years and I loved the experience of being around the boat race crews mm. and being on the Thames. And I live in southwest London, mm. so the boat race has always been a, a, an important staging post in, in my year. Yeah. Um, the, the turn of spring into summer in my mind. Um, and at the end of the Six Nations as well. So it was a nice little continuity to it yeah i would have loved to have done the boat race on television and when when barry um moved across to the world feed um i think it was it was a choice between me or um andrew cotter um and i think it was a mix of a mix of the accents initially because dan topolsky was the summarizer mm. um cotter's brilliant mm. i am in awe of andrew cotter yeah um, and they made absolutely the right choice 
But that 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 hit me quite hard. Mm. But in the end, in their mind, my voice and Dan Topolsky's voice would were just a bit too similar. Okay. Um, or at least that was the that was the reason I was given. They yeah. could have quite happily said as well, Cotter's a better commentator, and I'd have lived with that. But yeah, I'd have loved to have done the boat race. What have been the sporting voices that, well, you've touched on those that you've perhaps rated over the years gone by. Who out there do you think is doing a decent job at the minute? Um, I love Jonathan Agnew on, on, on TMS. Actually, what I try to do is I still listen to loads. And, and I, uh, you know, I think I'm probably an amalgam of lots of, lots of people. Most importantly, I'm me. Yeah. But I'm, I'm picking up um, nuts and bolts from other people as well. So when I'm in conversational mood, when I'm slightly jocular, I've got, Agger's voice mm. in my head. Um, I love Barry's warmth, Barry Davis's warmth, and his eye for the person. He's looking into the sports person's eyes. Mm. He's trying to get into their heart, which I think is what our job is about to a to a large extent. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many now, aren't there? I love Clive. I love I love I love Clive's naturalness. Mm-hmm. His 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 turn of phrase. I love the way Miles builds mm. a match. Miles blocks out a commentary brilliantly. Yeah. He takes us from phase to phase, from set piece to set piece. He, yeah. He's he's excellent. Um, crikey, we could just go on forever. <laughs> Peter Drury for his use of prose. There are so many now, you know, there are so many to enjoy and to and to um, take the best bits out of. Given the current sporting climate with, you know, rights changing hands, that kind of thing, do you think, you know, you talk of those various voices and you say, you know, how, how many there are these days doing the job, do you think the days of a job for life are sort of long gone? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought um, when I'd been at the BBC for 20 years that I'd be there for another 20 years and mm. then happily take my pension. But no, that's gone. Um, just because of sports rights, I think we all understand it now. How can people make it a job for life? Do you think? Uh, work on football for Sky. <laughs> yeah, okay. And I think that's about it. Yeah. Um, maybe work on cricket for Sky. Perhaps um, I certainly don't have a job for life. Who knows how long BT will carry on doing rugby? I hope, and I suspect BT hope for a, for a while yet. But no, the um, the contracts are, are, are shared around too much now for us to to thing we have jobs for life mm. has commentating ever spilled into your everyday life school sports day um chuntering to yourself on the tube rush hour as you break to make it's mullins at the top of the escalator he's through and he's going to be the first one out no 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 absolutely not i um, I, I try and get away from sport as often as i can okay. and i'll and i'll read and i'll listen to music yeah. but no the last people my mates want when we're sitting in a pub watching rugby on the telly is that idiot on the telly uh, commentating to them in the pub. Yeah, good, good. Um, and uh, what do you think are the key facets that make a good commentator? So many, and I'll try and I'll try and prioritise them. Humanity, I think, is the most important thing. I think you've got to be human. You've got to like people, um, and and hopefully see the best in people. And you need words. Um, that are perhaps sometimes beyond the ordinary. You need a good vocabulary. Um, you need an awareness of timing. You need a little bit of musicality to be able to use those words properly. You need to understand the importance of silence. And we've talked about this. Mm. But you're not being paid by the word. Um, I'm at home sometimes watching other commentators 
and I enjoy that moment and I think why did I enjoy that moment so much and I'm thinking it's because they're not talking mm. and you can just hear the crowd and you can hear the players and the breathing and you can hear the referee so uh, put yourself in the in the put yourself on the sofa next to the viewer mm. next to the listener you know know what know what you like and make mm. sure that you deliver what you like um yeah just be yourself um I think that's 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 what the best commentators are they're passionate about their sport they enjoy watching great people doing great things and occasionally we can come up with a few words we can spin a line or two that hopefully illuminates what they've just done do you think the public at large are conscious of the sort of role of a commentator or the awareness of of, of how symbiotic they can be to to the big moments that, that they've enjoyed over the years, whether it's Mo Farah winning you know gold medals or Becky Adlington or a World Cup rugby World Cup final, these sorts of things? Because it often strikes me that that that's a bit of the joy or, or the privilege that you get is is if you get it right to be almost the passive soundtrack to a moment that they've really enjoyed. And, and it's, I, I guess there's a sort of two sides to it. You don't want them to be conscious that you were there, but at the same time, it's nice to know that you might have been part of a special moment. It always strikes me, um, when you watch sport without a commentator, how strange it seems. Mm. Um, and there will always be people who say, you, you take away from my, my um, viewing of this sport. I wish you didn't talk. I've never actually had a letter from anyone saying, I wish you'd talk more. Yeah. That's that's one of the key things, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I, I, and I hope I hope so. Otherwise, what we're doing is is pointless. I hope that you know mm. we add to the occasion. We're, we're we're just underlining something that there's 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 some audio reference there to go with with the great visual moment. So uh, it's your last sporting week event weekend, whatever you call it. Um, what's it going to be? Crikey! Crikey! I don't care who's playing in it. Um, maybe a Lions test. I've never never commentated on the Lions. That would be nice. Um, failing that, a World Cup final between, and I don't care who the teams are, but I want them to be the two best teams in the world at that point. I want the match to be compelling, for it to be memorable. And at the end of the match, I just finish on the score. And there's no hoopla. And somebody else will then sit in the seat next time round. Nick Mullins, thank you. Been a pleasure. So there it is. Nick Mullins, absolutely brilliant guest. I hope you will agree. And uh, I love just the little area where he started talking about being a picture framer. And he has his his co-commentators, summarisers, to to put in the splashes of colour. I mean, given the the, the mention of poetry earlier on, it sort of, it really encourages the idea of immersing oneself into art and culture a little bit more, perhaps to, to broaden the depth of your ability to find the right words or expand the vocabulary in that visual sense. So perhaps a little work on uh, for me, I think, coming away from that one. And also the second mention uh, only in our third episode of Silence and how important that is. So uh, thanks very much for listening. I really hope you've enjoyed it. This has been a Rugby Media production and I look forward to being back with you next week for episode four. Please leave a review and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.